Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Many of us say that prayer every single Sunday in church. I remember memorizing it when I was in Sunday school as a kid. It was part of our work along with the Apostles' Creed and the books of the New Testament that we all memorized, I think, in the second, third, or fourth grade. Um, But regardless of when you first learned that prayer, I think it's probably fair to say that For us in the Christian tradition, this is the most important prayer we have, the prayer that we say the most. It is, after all, what Jesus taught us. And I've always been really resonated with this prayer, but when I went through my very first Manna and Mercy retreat when I was in seminary, it took on a whole other meaning for me. For those of you who do not, don't know, Manna and Mercy is a book written by New Testament scholar Dan Erlander. And the way um, Erlander frames this book is that he claims at the beginning that all of us approach the work of theology through a certain lens that even if we think that we are just kind of blank slates and say, well, the Bible says this, or our creeds say this, all of us bring certain lenses that guide the way we interpret scripture, that guide the way we do theology. And so Erlander's honest about that. He, he, he names his at the outset. And so he raised the question, what would it look like to interpret the whole Bible through the lens of Jesus, meaning the things that Jesus did and the things that Jesus taught us, what if we use those values to guide our interpretation for all of Scripture? So for any interpretation, we have to ask the question, would Jesus say amen to this or not? So for instance, when we find passages in uh, parts of the Hebrew Bible where it seems like God is commanding the slaughter of entire villages, for those of us who, who are Christian, we must hold that text up and say, would Jesus say I'm into this or not? And I don't know about you, but I can't imagine Jesus ever saying amen to killing people. In fact, there's a story in the Gospels where the disciples wanted to do that when they were, were rejected. And the disciples say, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven and consume them? And the scriptures say Jesus turned and rebuked them. So one of the kind of the most underlying principles of manna and mercy is that if Jesus would not say amen to an interpretation, then neither should we. But Erlander also kind of goes a bit further with, um, with kind of this work of interpreting scripture through the lens of Jesus, specifically with the Lord's prayer. So he was once asked where he got his title, manna and mercy. And he responded this way, He said that it was very customary in Jesus's day for Jewish rabbis to give their followers, give their disciples a prayer as a summary of their most important teaching. Sort of like we would think of like the Cliff Notes or the Wikipedia page or something. And so you have the story in the Gospels where the disciples say, Lord, teach us how to pray. And what follows is the Lord's Prayer. And, and for Erlander, what he, what he claims is that this really isn't about Jesus 
teaching the disciples how to talk to God, but rather this is a prayer that Jesus gives to them that represents the very heart, the very essence of his teaching, that if he was going to sum up everything he was about into a prayer, then this, this is what it would be. And right in the center of the Lord's Prayer, you have these words, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Give us this day our daily bread would remind the hearers of the story of manna in the wilderness where, where God provided daily bread for each person, but also in that taught them a lesson. That if you remember the story, those who gathered too much, the, the manna rotted and it began to stink. That in that lesson, God was, t- was teaching the people that, that God provides, that the earth provides all that we need, but none of us should take too much. And when we do, it causes rot and stench. And in a world of tremendous inequality, in a world where wealth is so unevenly distributed, that's such an important reminder for us that God has given us all that we need, that this world can provide the needs of every human being on the planet if, if we don't take too much, if some of us don't take too much. And so give us this day our daily bread is Jesus' call to us to remember that we are called to take what we need, but not to overconsume. Because when we do, it means others don't have their daily bread. And then the second part of that, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, this theme of mercy. So there you have it, manna, daily bread, and mercy, forgiveness. Now, a more accurate translation that a lot of the, um, maybe not the, the version of the Lord's Prayer that most of us memorize, but a more accurate translation of the text from the Gospels is forgive us our debts. It's this very real economic uh, message. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. The first century economy functioned in such a way that many, many of Jesus' hearers found themselves trapped in an endless cycle of debt. The way it worked is like this. So let's say that somebody was struggling to feed their family. And so they would then, in turn, uh, go to a wealthy person and say, I need to take out a loan so I can feed my family. And so they would. But when it came time to repay that loan, they, they couldn't. And so they went back to the person and he would say, well, I'll tell you what, you don't have to repay this loan, but guess what? I'm going to need you to give me your land. So now the wealthy person has just gotten wealthier. He has taken over the poor person's land, and what the poor person had, they no longer have. But let's say they still have the debt, and so the wealthy person says, I need my money. I'll tell you what I'll do. You've given me your land. Now why don't you come and work for me? You can be my slave, and we'll call it even. So all of a sudden you went from someone being a landowner who got into a difficult situation They got themselves into debt that they couldn't repay just to make ends meet, just to feed their family. And then they wound up losing their land and losing their freedom. And so you went from a fairly even distribution of land to a situation of tremendous inequity and inequality. And so when Jesus says, forgive us our debts, I think he's not only talking about forgive those who have wronged us. I think he's also saying, hey, don't get yourself in a situation where you're exploiting the poor because that's not what God asks us to do. Manna and mercy. And so the rest of the book really is kind of focused on what does it look like if we interpret all of Scripture 
through these lens, through the lens of manna, that we none of us take more than we need. And through the lens of mercy, that yes, we forgive those who have wronged us just as God forgives us, but also we work to create a world where those who are most in debt, those who are most struggling to repay what they owe, can find some mercy, can find some forgiveness so they can pick the pieces of their lives back up together. And I love the fact that this message of economic justice, this message of social justice, is paired in a prayer. Because it, 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 it calls into question this division between kind of the, the spiritual aspect of our faith and the activist aspect of our faith. In fact, it would say that division shouldn't exist at all. That it is how we live in our faith to do the work of economic and social justice. But that work is prayerful work. That's what separates the way we as Christians do this work from, say, a secular organization. That we do this because we believe this is intimately related to our relationship with God. That it's intimately related to even our prayer life with God. That there's no distinguishing between the two. It's all part of the same. And I think that's so important because I think we have such, this, such a tendency to compartmentalize the aspects of our faith or even to divide ourselves from each other based on which one we resonate more with. You know, so, well, the people who really are into worship are over here. The people who are really into social justice are over here. The people who are really into personal discipline and devotion are over here. And I think what we see when we look at the Lord's Prayer is that, that those lines should it exist at all, that they're all part of the work of faith, that we are called to worship, hallowed be thy name, in the prayer. We are all called to grow and pray and devote ourselves to the disciplines of, of, of journaling and biblical study and prayer and fasting. But we are also all called to the work of justice and the work of mercy, the work of sharing the resources that God has gifted this world more evenly and more fairly. It's not that we, any of us get to pick and choose, not if we want to fully live into Jesus' teachings. So my hope is that the next time you pray the Lord's Prayer, the next time you hear it, the next time you read it, that you will think about Jesus' call to us of redistributing wealth, of making sure there's enough food, enough resources for everyone, of doing the work of economic and social justice as central to our faith, as central to the things that Jesus taught us. And may that prayer become the way that we live and move and act in the world. Amen.